Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to Loose Units Dead Serious. Every week I sit down with my dad, John Verhoeven, and he talks me through some of the frankly horrifying shit that he endured while he was working at Kinsella Funeral Homes back in the 90s. Dad was also a cop and a firefighter and a safety inspector, and he was in forensics and the air wing. Good God, what a show-off. Anyway, here he is, John Verhoeven. Dad, hi. Heidi, hi. Heidi, hi. I like that. That's um, that's very jovial. Now, Dad, one of the great things about this season of Loose Units, which I'm really enjoying, is the fact that, I mean, you remember a few weeks back, you were talking about the Anglican minister who kept cropping up, basically the Mr. Bean character of mm. your... Yeah. Time of the funeral home. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and make an assumption here, and it might be an unfair assumption, but would it be fair to say that your time in the funeral home was full of, I hate to use this phrase because it's a bit rote, but colourful characters? Paul, considering yeah. everyone wore black, mm. the term colourful is uh, fascinating in your, um, your analogy. Right. But beneath those sombre black suits... Yep. were some of the most colourful. <laughs> now, colourful is a term used in police terminology mm-hmm. to describe. If you say that a particular person is of colourful character, that generally meant, and perhaps still today means, basically they're a bit of a crimmy type. Now, what does crimmy mean? Criminal. Yeah. I mean, it's very difficult in life not to make... You know when you first see someone, we, we are our brains are set up. To profile people. You exactly. see them, you make assumptions based and on their appearance. And we do it yeah. all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You'll do it in a coffee shop. Yep. You do it as people are walking towards you. Yeah. I don't know whether anyone actually walks toward people in Melbourne at the moment, but that's No, probably... we sort of do, yeah, we do big kind of arcs around people. Mm. Um, oh, by the way, 11 people today. 11 people what? I don't see the thing is no one outside of Victoria is actually really paying attention. I don't think, but the fact is we've kind of gotten it down from you know hundreds of people a day getting uh, COVID to uh, today's number is eleven. We've that's, that's our great. lowest. God, we're we're nailing it. But yeah, long story short, we can't actually approach people to profile them. Although, Dad, let me tell you something: when people don't wear their masks and you're out in public, that is. You profile the shit out of them, then you make some serious assumptions. Mm. Then, but you're saying when you are in the police force, you're. You know, you're having to assess people based on aesthetic, uh, aesthetic things. You know, the way they dress, the way they walk, the way they're kind of moving, all that stuff. Mm. And um, and we all do it, and we we do it incredibly uh, quickly. Our brains, um, or, or probably most people's brains, yeah, uh, can assess and assimilate 
and sort of process information very, very quickly. And that's one of the keys, dare I say it, to policing, where you you make uh, pretty quick judgments, generally as a safety uh, matter. But back to the funeral industry, Paul, I'd been there for probably two years and I was um, actually involved in some of the recruiting okay. of some of the... Uh, of the characters and uh, I'll never forget this morning this guy rocked up and he was dressed very very casually and you know I think it's fair to say that um, statistically a lot of people in today's society have tattoos but when I was a uh, police officer in the 1980s um, tattoos were not super common Okay. Uh, mainly on women, but this guy rocks up. So you really notice tattoos, and this guy rocked up. But some of the tattoos, in my opinion, based on my first meeting with this guy, bearing mm-hmm. in mind he's applying for a job to work to to work at the funeral home at Kinsella's. And is a lot of that um, is some of that forward facing? So you would have to actually deal with bereaved families. Is it, what I'm saying is, it, would tattoos be a bad thing in if in that job? Paul, very good question. Um, but let's face it, suits do tend to cover, cover most. up most tattoos, um, yeah. unless you've got uh, tattoos on your neck. Um, but what I did notice with this particular guy mm-hmm. is that he had a couple of tattoos that, in my opinion, had uh, been done in jail. <gasps> so he'd done some time. So there are a couple of. Sorry. What, how, how do you. I mean, just for the lay folk, how do you know when a tattoo has been done in jail? Does it say the words "Oh no, I'm in prison," or is it just more like the quality of the of the penmanship? What is it? It's that the quality of the uh, like a jail tat is generally uh, pretty rough. Oh, yeah. There are some key tattoos uh, in the world of you know prisons. Not I don't think so much now, but in the 70s and 80s, the classic um, tattoo was of a swallow, a tiny bird on on a guy's neck. Mm-hmm. That was that was pretty uh, pretty sort of indicated. You'd done some time. Yeah. But there were some really heavy tattoos like ACAC on your fingers. Can you guess what that means? Um, I'm not going to say the last word and no one will ever get me to say it on air. A copper. All coppers are C-U-N-T-S. So that that was a classic. Yep. Okay. And then sometimes uh, tattoos would be on the inside of the lower lip, Mm -hmm. which is pretty neat. But sometimes they'd say some pretty weird things and you'd arrest someone and then... They, they used to take great pleasure in peeling their lower lip down to and expose... And it, it says, time for a smooch. And you're like, oh, you got me. Mm, mm. <laughs> um, so this guy had some pretty interesting tats, but his uh, history, he was from New Zealand. Yeah. Um, and also, funny about the New Zealand thing that I'm going to put out there, and I don't want anyone to get offended, but during the 1980s, if you were from New Zealand and you were arrested in Sydney, mm-hmm. bail could be refused if you were a New Zealander. Really? Well, there was the thing of flight. They just hop on the next plane and piss off. Oh, okay. So that was one of the reasons. But okay. so this guy had a few few sort of dodgy tats. He was from New Zealand. I love New Zealand. And but he'd had some very very interesting experiences in the funeral industry, but he was also an embalmer. Which really really worked well into cuz he could be doing some behind the scenes stuff cuz you know we used to use that that incredible embalmer. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure whether we've discussed him at length, but I thought it was a great idea to have another guy. And he was living locally, and um, and we gave him the gig. And he uh, he was good. He, he kept a very low profile. But 
one day at the Northern Suburbs Crematorium, yeah. we had an urgent uh, emergency, a medical emergency. Now, it sounds weird saying medical emergency because that's generally associated, that term, with someone that's living. However, what had happened is that a particular body... Now, all the listeners know the process. We go through the funeral and we end up in the back... And just before they're about to put the body into the actual furnace, they noticed that this particular man had a pacemaker still under the skin, up near his right, sort of on his chest, but over near his, um, you know, the joint, the top of the arm, sort of just near the underarm. Yeah, sure. And okay. you could see it. And it was like... Um, I guess the best analogy uh, for those people that have not seen what a pacemaker actually looks like under the skin, it's a little bit like if you got a scalpel and you made an incision perhaps, let's say maybe three inches long, but just one incision. Uh-huh. And then you, with your fingers gloved hand, of course, you then pulled uh, at that little the top fold and then you began to use your you'd be, you'd begin to use your scalpel like skinning like skinning the, the human but you'd only be doing it in a tiny area you would create what i would describe as an envelope of skin uh-huh you would then insert I mean, obviously surgeons are doing this inserting then they connect it up to the to whatever and they they you know get it all working to control you know the heart if you're whatever they're doing from a medical perspective. However, these pacemakers must be removed prior to cremation, but not prior to burial. Now, the reason they have to be removed prior to cremation is that in that intense gas-fired furnace, they can explode. And when I say explode, we are talking a small incendiary. Now, it could cause damage to the oven, but imagine, look, it's just, it's, it's scary to think there's a tiny little bomb inside. So it has to be removed. Now, I don't know how this particular sort of situation arose. It had, it had, they had many, many opportunities and should have been a lot more thorough. This was not our funeral home, by the way. This was another funeral home. But it turns out that the guy that I'd employed, this somewhat nefarious character, yeah, who was very, very good at what he did, he was a travelling embalmer. And he had done embalming all over Australia and in New Zealand. And he was known by some of the staff at the Northern Suburbs Crematorium, which I didn't know that they knew him. And I'm talking to him out in the the front near the northern entrance to the Northern Chapel, and we're just chatting away. Um, we'd just done a um, a big funeral, yeah. And a member of staff came up, looking slightly distressed, and said to him, "Look, um, we have a problem," and he then said to me, look, you come with me. So the two of us went with this member of staff. We went into the very the, sort of the bowels of the uh, of staff. We went into the very the, sort of the bowels of the uh, of the North were. Uh-huh. And there on a gurney was a deceased male person who clearly had a pacemaker still installed under the skin. And the, the wound had, from my estimation, had had well and truly healed. It may have been in there for maybe 20 years. And they needed to get this pacemaker removed, and it was an emergency. 
So this New Zealand guy that I'd employed, he started patting down his own pockets. And I'm thinking, wow, what you know? What are you looking for? And I, I figured he was looking for a knife. Now, not <laughs> everyone carries a knife, obviously. Sure, sure. And then he said to me, he said, um, do you have a pen? No. And the only pen that I had was a pen that Christine had given me. Something that you might not know, Paul, and I'm, I can guarantee you and the listeners, the, the listeners definitely don't know this, but I actually used to collect pens and uh, Christine used to buy me the most serious pens, uh-huh. uh, like pretty expensive, uh, Mont Blanc and, and just fantastic. Uh, she bought me an Ernest Hemingway commemorative pen and all sorts of great stuff. And so that, I had was, one, that was like your thing, basically. I liked, I collected pens and, uh, and she used to get me one every year. And I had a pretty good collection. And on that particular day, I had one of the pens. I'm not quite sure, but it was a very good pen. And uh, I handed this pen. Um, oh, this is such a... Christine's never heard this story, and I'm probably not going <laughs> to... Tell her. I'm not going to tell her because I think she'd find it rather distressing. And Okay, okay. But um, I handed this guy my beautiful pen, and he uh, he used the pen as a, as, a, as a makeshift kind of a rough blade, and he just basically hacked into this guy. Is this story just unbelievable? I'm what watching happens when, What happens when someone hacks in with a pen to someone's dead body? Like, I mean, surely no, it's not sharp, but it's not sharp enough, right? Surely, no, but it has a pointed end. Yeah, and um, and it was so weird and surreal. And what he needed to do was puncture this particular guy's um, sort of up in his chest area. And then he managed to. It was it was horrific watching it because the pacemaker had become basically infused into the into the body and become a part of the the flesh had, the flesh had grown around it and um, and then um, he managed to reach in and he didn't have gloves on, so uh, it was pretty bad. Anyway, he ripped out the uh, the pacemaker, and then they proceeded to uh, to uh, to incinerate. The body. So that's pretty, pretty full on. And the only thing that I was concerned about were the little plugs of skin and, and, and stuff that had made their way up inside my beautiful pen. So I had to uh, open and close the pen. You know how you depress the top to get the little pointy bit out? Yep. I sort of, it was like a spud gun, basically. Fucking hell. It had filled up, instead of potato, it had filled Shut up, up with. Yeah, so that was pretty quick. <laughs> so, oh, hang on. How, like, what would have happened if they'd incinerated the body and not gotten the pacemaker out? No, there would have been an explosion. It would have exploded in his chest. Oh, without a doubt. But, I mean, can I be totally brutal here? If the body's being cremated anyway and it's in a furnace, what difference would an explosion make? It's not like, he's, it's, not like it's an open casket. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. No, no. Um, look, I don't know, Paul, but I just um, know that the the manufacturer of the of the oven wanted to, uh, would didn't not want an want. explosion. <laughs> no, no, because that could void their warranty. Yes, and that is very. Very much the thing. Okay. Ooh, that's rough. That's a rough story. Okay, mm. so this guy, this, you know, MacGyver of a tattooed New Zealand embalmer has just whipped out your favourite pen, gouged a pacemaker out of a dead body. Had, did he at least wipe the pen off? Oh, look, I don't recall that minor detail, Paul. Yeah, okay. I mean, for me, that would be a detail that would never leave my memory. Yeah, but I'm probably, I'm pretty sure I didn't stick it back in my pocket uh, did you, at stage. Did you ever have um, any other dealings with this guy? He, um, look, I'm sure that most people are aware of Mount Erebus, uh, the mountain in, yes. uh, in Antarctica. And uh, Air New Zealand used to conduct these tours. Mm-hmm. They were day flights. Uh, they'd, they'd leave um, New Zealand and they'd sort of early in the morning, maybe eight o'clock, and they'd come back at seven at night. And they, uh, you know, they had a particular flight path. And um, on this fateful occasion in... 1979, which was kind of getting near when I was thinking about joining the New South Wales Police Force, um, this Air New Zealand flight crashed into Mount Erebus and 237 passengers from probably 10 or 15 countries plus 20 crew, uh, hopefully, all died instantly when they just went smack bang into the middle of Mount Erebus. And uh, it was a nightmare uh, for the New Zealand police that were involved in the identification of the bodies. Um, and there were some horrific things that happened down there. Um, there was a particular type of seagull that uh, in front of all the police and all the emergency rescue, um, you know, body identification uh, people, these these birds were just eating the, the bodies, not dissimilar to the, the case of the, the hands. Remember the hands on top of the building? Yeah, yeah, where the, you put, they put them out to dry so they could yeah. fingerprint them. And, then, yeah. and they came back after lunch and the seagulls had come down and taken all the hands. I mean, a nightmare. But these okay. things, you know, they do happen. And, 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 and it was very traumatic for a lot of these young police officers to, to see these these voracious birds just pecking away and eating um, at all the deceased. So what they had to do, they had to then rebury all the bodies. Um, and it was and, and it was a, it was terrible. And a lot of these police had never seen anything so so traumatic. But and but what a lot of people don't know is that. When they managed to get the bodies and body parts back into um, these crates, and then they flew them back to New Zealand, mm. now they were they, these bodies were rock hard. They were frozen stiff, like a you know, like a if you pull a chop or a piece of meat out of the freezer oh. and you drop it on the floor, sure. it bounces. It bounces. It's rock hard. 
In fact, under the right circumstances, you could get a piece of frozen meat, you could put it in a vice, and you could get a hammer, and you could smash it. You'd just break it in two. Um, So these bodies were in that state. They were frozen stiff. However, unexpectedly and unbeknownst and totally um, sort of out of New Zealand's sort of um, weather, sort of climate, sort of what one would normally expect, they were confronted with a heat wave. Now, when these bodies were in these crates on the tarmac waiting to be repatriated to... Uh, obviously, they had to be identified, but once you'd identified the bodies, they would then be repatriated to funeral homes all over New Zealand. And some of them, for example, the perhaps, I think it was between 20 and 25 people were from Japan. Uh, there was an Australian. There were a couple of Americans, French, etc. These people had to be, their, their remains had to be repatriated to the various countries. Yeah. But they were on the tarmac, and it was a, a little bit surreal, because I, how I know this is that this particular guy, this guy we'd employed at um, the funeral home, mm-hmm. he was involved in some of the embalming. And he was telling me, he was actually at the airport, he was involved in the entire process from when the bodies arrived. He said it was so, so terrible, because what was happening is that the bodies were all melting uh, thawing out, uh-huh. and the the fluids from the bodies uh, were, were were literally dripping out onto the onto the tarmac. He said it was it was really bad. So That's... then, what they would had to have done, yep, um, is they would have to consider, um, you know, putting them back into um, cold storage. Um, but just and you can imagine because once and we've discussed decomposition, um, particularly up in the tropics. So whenever yep. you introduce heat to a human body that is deceased, the decomposition begins to uh, happen very rapidly. And as I've said to to you and the listeners before, particularly um, because a friend of mine was involved in um, some of the tsunami body identification yes, uh, yes, in in blood work, and after a very, very short period of time, you cannot recognize your loved ones. Everyone starts to just look like, I guess, uh, what would be a good analogy? Uh, Probably a bad analogy, and I'm probably known for a couple of bad analogies, but I would say that if you got a, uh, a bowl of jelly and maybe painted with, with a, a black pen, decent-sized black pen, two eyes being circles, a nose and a little mouth, and just left it out in the sun so you could see the face painted on the top of the jelly, if you left that jelly out in the sun for some time, you could actually watch it. Um, and I think that's kind of... Maybe what starts to happen to a human face. Uh, okay. Pretty bad. Yep. So, Paul, um, after the, the grotesque little story, Re the Face um, decomposing, Yep. Um, I, I went on to uh, work with this guy, and he... Um, <clears throat> remember I mentioned that he was a travelling embalmer? Yes. So he used to carry his little kit bag with him. And he'd done a lot of work all over Sydney, um, some country embalming, uh, interstate embalming, and... The thing about the funeral industry is that, you know, you can kind of get involved with some fairly interesting and, you know, as I said before, colourful characters. Now, this particular guy, he actually, he owed me some money. I'd lent him some money. Yep. And I was pretty keen to sort of get the money back. And he kind of how, was... How, how much? How much money would you say? Um, it was about $1,000 I lent him. Okay. So, yeah, nothing, not a small amount. No, no, not small. And, and more... and. 
considerably more back then than now. But he was look, he was he was working for me. He was mm-hmm. um, you know, it's not as though I thought he'd just piss off and yeah. and he and we, we had a good sort of working relationship and I believe he needed the money to as a bond for a place he was moving into. His girlfriend had come over from New Zealand mm-hmm. and I was just happy to to help him out. And but because his work was intermittent so you know he'd he'd because we couldn't we could not employ him all the time. He was like a an excess standby for for big funerals, like yeah. that time I got my dad in. You know, you, you'd sometimes just need extra staff. He and was a, to, he yeah he was one of your regulars basically. Yeah 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 yeah. And um, but he was he was sort of a happy go lucky. I didn't ask too many questions about his past. He didn't you know he knew I'd been in the police force, and we there was a mutual sort of quiet sort of understanding that neither of us would probe too deeply. And so I lend him this money and I waited probably maybe two months, maybe near, 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 getting near three months for the money and I began to feel that, you know, I'm, something's just not quite right. Anyway, he called me one day and he said, look, John, I'm, 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 I apologize. I've got to leave the country. Um, I, I know I owe you some money. However, in this garage on the northern beaches, I've got this coffin. And he said, the coffin is worth a lot of money. No. A lot of money. He said, it's brand new. Um, I'm prepared, if you are, if you wipe the debt, (laughs) I'll give you a coffin. If it had been a shitty wooden coffin, uh, with the greatest of respect, I mean, that's not fair for me to have said that, shitty, but cheap. Hang on. Cheap and nasty. Hang on, I have to say, the fact... Sorry, if you've said yes to a coffin, right, and mm. this was happening in the 90s, then why... Like, surely you didn't say yes, because I don't remember a coffin ever being around unless you had it put in storage or kept it Paul, in a funeral Paul, home. Or... Paul, dear, dear, dear Paul, this is a part of your life that inextricably, somehow or other, you've forgotten about. Wait, Maybe what? you found it so traumatic. I'm jumping ahead just a little bit. Let me cut to the chase. I went around and I see this coffin that was in storage. It was called a Batesville coffin. Uh-huh. A Batesville coffin for everyone is the bee's knees of coffins. Okay. Okay. They can cost up to $50,000. Oh shit! That's a good conversion rate. Okay, that was not necessarily uh, the value. However, I'd already been dealing in antiques and fine art for ten years, and I knew yep. a bargain when I saw one. Yep. And just very, very quickly, Paul, a couple of weeks ago, as everyone knows, I organised a funeral for my father. And when I was talking to Anne Wilson, the head of this funeral home, yep. I mentioned this story in passing. None of the details, just the name Batesville. Her eyes lit up. And she said to me that she had been given a private tour in a town in America called Batesville. The whole town based around the, the, the sort of the funeral coffin industry. Yeah, okay. And she said to me back then, because I described, as I'm about to describe to you, this coffin, she said to me that that particular coffin that you owned was incredible. Now, I will describe this coffin. Firstly, it took four men to lift it. That's yep. without a body in it. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Now, you're familiar with The Last Supper? Uh, the famous painting by... Oh, yes, 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 yes. Okay. Yes, yes. 
Imagine that scene with Jesus at the head of the table with the disciples to the left and right. Mm -hmm. Imagine that scene in bronze, in high relief, replicated probably eight times around this coffin. This is a mother of a coffin. It's huge. It's bronze. It is a work of art. Now, I managed to get that back to our place Mm -hmm. when we were living um, in At the school, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. And that coffin stayed downstairs for about a year. Now, I know, obviously. (laughs) Yep. I mean, Paul, we parked our car next to it. How do I not remember the fact that there was a coffin in our garage for a a year? Well, if I mention that to your sister Anne, yep, yep. um, in fact, I'm going to in the next few days to find out whether she remembers. Or is it possible that that was so upsetting... But I know that you and Anne, and and, and there was a talking point, obviously. Anyone that came to our place, if I felt them uh, not worthy but would appreciate, um, I would take them downstairs into into this huge cavernous room. And show them the coffin you kept there. Yeah. And... uh, but, Paul, it was an investment. And I, Look, to, to be honest with you, I didn't actually know how to get rid of it. I just, I had, I had visions of selling it back to a funeral home and all this sort of stuff. But, it, you know, the, the call, the demand for a Batesville in Australia, I yeah. mean, I don't know the stats, but they, I don't think they'd sell many in a year. Um, because, and, 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 and by the way, they don't generally go into the ground. They go into a vault. And inside the Batesville, um, it's lead-lined. So the body that goes into that's generally embalmed uh, and, and, as I said, goes into a generally a crypt. Um, so it becomes but, part of the, basically, it becomes part of the display. Okay. Yeah. So and, and, and they are, they are, they are, God. I mean, what I'd like people to do um, is Google Batesville coffins and just behold the, the, I just don't, I can't describe it. And, 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 and but Paul, eventually... Yeah, I just thought I need to get rid of this thing, so I came up with a bit of a brainwave. I had a very, very good relationship with a with a really big auction house in Sydney, and I'm going to mm. say who they are. Um, they're called Raffin Kelleher and Thomas um, and Jim Kelleher, who's who was the the principal of that uh, auction house that I still deal with to this very day. Yep. Um, I had a discussion with him and he's such a, a really decent guy. He's, he's, he likes me. We have a very good relationship. And he said, John, I'm happy to take the coffin and we'll just see, we'll just see what we can do with it. Uh, the coffin owed me around about maybe $1,200. And uh, I Even the Obama, the Obama. Yeah, but, but, but I mean, the debt was wiped. Uh, so he got to keep the 1200 I got to keep the coffin. I was then going to put it into an auction in Sydney in Leichhardt. Yep. And this happened uh, in the 90s. And I was, there was a bit of trepidation. And, and Jim Kelleher was very, very, uh, he was just great. He just thought, look, let's just see what happens. And the auction uh, happened on a Tuesday, uh, as it has for the last probably 40 years, every Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jim called me up. Because uh, I, I, I was waiting. I didn't want to be at the auction because I'd find that a bit stressful. And he um, and he called me and he said, John, uh, the uh, the coffin sold and I, I kicked ass. It went for $7,000. Oh. And uh, Jim normally would never, ever divulge, ever, 
who buys the coffin, and he didn't kind of divulge that, Paul, but he told me that a brothel in Newcastle bought the coffin and they built an entire themed room around said coffin. off. And that's a fact. That's, uh, well, you know, um, God, just what do they call it? Buried balls deep, six... Rock hard I mean, feet, like I, I, I think it's fantastic. Uh, That's incredible. Hang on, so there is a brothel in Newcastle. There is a brothel in New- Newcastle in which there is the same coffin as a centerpiece that that lived in our garage apparently mm. for a year when I was a child. Correct. How did I not get inside that thing and, and like pretend to be dead? I don't no, understand that. No, well, you you could never have been able to. You would not be able to lift the lid. It's so heavy. You can't crack a Batesville, but you can crack a fat at Newcastle Brothel. Please, enjoy the veal. Um, Thank you so much for listening to this extremely weird and fantastically enjoyable episode for me, certainly, and I know for Dad, of Loose Units Dead Serious. We had such a great time. Don't forget to go out and grab a copy of Electric Blue. We want to break those charts wide open, so grab it on audiobook, physical, ebook, whatever you can. We miss you all terribly, and we can't wait to see you on Friday for a brand new episode of Loose Ends. Love you, Dad. I'll see you soon. Love you, mate. Bye. Bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.